1: Produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe.
2: Do you think that the Gardner heist was hatched out of TRC Auto Body? No. The FBI has said they believe the two thieves that actually went in are dead.
3: The guy who cuffed me, he was making sure that they weren't too tight on my wrist, and he adjusted it several times, and he said, "I, you're going to be here for a long time, so I don't want these to be too tight. So he was real calm and real nice about it, and he also several times said, sorry to have to do this.
2: A woman of considerable means and vision, and with a passion for old masters, begins collecting them. Rembrandt, Rubens, Raphael. Her collection grows so vast, She builds an Italian Renaissance-style palace in which to showcase it. And when she dies, she leaves it all to us, her art-loving heirs. But her small jewel of a museum lacks funds, its security is weak, and in time, it attracts the scheming of thieves. These details could only belong to one museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner in Boston, But what if we told you that these facts are also written into the DNA of another museum? One that is about 200 miles away in Glens Falls, New York, the Hyde Collection. Did you have guards? No guards,
0: no. We just had uh, volunteer ladies who, when we were open, were meandering around and usually chit-chatting with themselves.
2: (laughs) Fred Fisher was director of the Hyde for a dozen years, starting in 1978 when the museum was in its 15th year. It was the creation of the heiress of a paper fortune who built her Italian palace overlooking the family mill in 1912. Charlotte Prine met and fell in love with her future husband, Louis Hyde, in Boston at the turn of the 20th century. The pair loved art and Fenway Court, as Isabella Stewart Gardner was still calling her museum, had left an impression. In Glens Falls, the Hydes built their more modest version, old masters, 16th century tapestries, center courtyard, and all. When Fred Fisher was director, the paper mill in the Hydes' shadow still belched sulfur. There were other things that stunk, too. The endowment-starved Hyde meant that Fisher's job as director entailed wearing many hats or rubber gloves, depending.
0: I was out sometimes working in the yard, washing windows, just a variety of things just to keep this little place clean, or cleaner than it had been. It was a labor of love,
2: it truly was. Imagine then what Fisher must have thought when he heard that a scion of one of America's richest families, a Vanderbilt, was in town.
0: I must have began hearing stories about this guy driving a a Bentley in town probably in the summer of 80. Once in a while, a guide would come in, or one of my volunteers, and say, we just saw that Vanderbilt guy. Everybody's talking about this Vanderbilt guy. We saw him the other day at lunch, and he's such handsome, and I hear he's got a lot of money. (laughs) Being a a director of a very poor museum, when, when you hear money and you hear Vanderbilt, you think, well, maybe there's hope here.
2: Maybe. Or maybe Paul Sterling Vanderbilt, as he'd written in the museum's visitor log, wasn't who he said he was. His fingerprints would be among the first to be sent to FBI headquarters in the wake of the Gardner Museum robbery. Could Vanderbilt's real identity hold the key to solving that heist? From WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, this is Last Seen. I'm Kelly Horan.
4: And I'm Jack Rodoligo. This is Episode 8, Flim Flammer. When Paul Sterling Vanderbilt first signed the guest book at the Hyde Collection in April 1980, he gave an address, Katie Hill House. That's the spectacular Saratoga Springs mansion of a Vanderbilt widow just 23 minutes down the I-87 highway from Glens Falls. If Saratoga Springs is the belle of the ball, Glens Falls is arguably her plainer sister, who doesn't get asked to dance.
0: Katie Hill House was the Saratoga home of Mary Lou Whitney, who was the social butterfly of Saratoga. So I thought, wow.
4: But Vanderbilt wasn't staying at Katie Hill in Saratoga Springs. He was staying at the Queensbury Hotel in downtown Glens Falls, where he paid his bills in cash, tipped big, and aroused suspicion.
0: Even though he dressed well, he spoke well, he's a good-looking guy, the so-called Mr. Vanderbilt was just maybe a little bit too, and I think he might have been just giving himself away a little bit too much, but a very, very suave character.
2: At the time, the Queensbury Hotel was a grand, if faded, lady. A fireside perch beneath a literary-themed painting in the lobby seems to have appealed to Vanderbilt, who boasted of not only a blue-blooded pedigree, but a literary one, too. He reportedly spent many hours there, writing, or telling people that's what he was doing.
0: Because he sold himself to all of us as as a freelance writer for the New York Times and various prestigious publications.
2: You'd have to have family money to be a rich freelance writer. Vanderbilt looked and spoke and dressed like a Kennedy, people said. He sent armfuls of roses every week to a pretty local girl who would become his fiance. He had a Bentley and a chauffeur named Giles. Even in fancy Saratoga Springs, these details might have turned heads. In humble Glen's Falls, they caused a minor sensation. On Halloween day in 1980, Six months after he first came to town, Vanderbilt called on Fred Fisher at the museum.
0: Sat down in the courtyard, and for about an hour or so, he went on and on about how he's so interested in art, and he was writing about art, and he's particularly interested in art theft. And that was the beginning of a little bit of concern, because he went on and on about... Various thefts that he'd heard about. And, you know, it was clearly movie kind of stuff. Cat walked, you know, walking on the ceiling and jumping in through skylights. And he, you know, and and he read about these things and he was starting to write an article. And it was basically trying to draw out of me about what's the security at the museum. And so I immediately, that was kind of the first red flag.
4: And not the last. In subsequent meetings throughout the fall, Vanderbilt asked Fisher about renting the Hyde's smaller mansion next door. As a writing retreat, its windows happened to look directly into the museum. In mid-November, a friend of Fisher's in the city planning office told him that Vanderbilt had been in asking to see the museum's floor plans. Vanderbilt had implied that he was there on official business to review the Hyde's structural details. He'd asked to take the blueprints with him, but was refused. And Fisher says Vanderbilt peppered him with questions about the museum's security.
0: Are your windows secure? And do you you have guards? And is there a security company that oversees your security? And just more than enough to make me think, oh my gosh, what is this
2: guy all about? Fisher was torn between flickering hope that Vanderbilt really was good for a much-needed windfall for the museum and a growing feeling that something wasn't right.
0: He came once and said he was going to New York to see some of his family members, and uh, he wanted to have a book of photographs of the paintings to show them because he was sure that if they saw these wonderful pictures, they would want to give us money. Well, I could only see that as a a shopping list for for somebody.
2: Fisher demurred. He told Vanderbilt that he and his young assistant intended to catalog the collection— But progress was slow. They had one beat-up typewriter and were on a six-month wait list for a new one, an IBM Selectric.
0: And so he said, well, let me see what I can do. And uh, one day he showed up with three of them in the back trunk of the Bentley. Uh, They didn't quite look brand new.
2: They weren't new. Fisher told the museum's board he was growing concerned about this Vanderbilt fellow. And then, that very weekend... A news story about, of all things, the IBM Selectric deepened Fisher's suspicions.
0: The chair of the board called me and said, Fred, you've got to watch 60 Minutes. They're talking about stolen IBM uh, Selectrics. And so, long story short, the following day I had someone come up here from Albany, an IBM rep, and he pulled, they had labels on them to the Hyde collection, on each one, and when he pulled the labels off there, they were from a rental company in New York City, uh, They weren't a gift. (laughs) So that really got me pretty scared.
2: Fisher began calling around, trying to confirm Vanderbilt's credentials. One of the calls he made was to an actual Vanderbilt.
0: And she was very helpful. And she said, you know, first of all, if it were a Vanderbilt, they wouldn't be driving a Bentley and being that officious. That's just not the way we do things. And she really laughed and said... I'm sorry, but you ought to be calling the police. You ought to be doing something about this. So that's when I really knew that I had a problem.
4: Fisher did call the police. And when Paul Sterling Vanderbilt next returned to meet him at the museum, plainclothes detectives from the state's Bureau of Criminal Investigation were there, eavesdropping. It was November 26, 1980, the day before Thanksgiving.
0: As we were... Facing each other in my office, and he was he's, he said i 've got a thirty thousand dollar check for you in my briefcase, but i've decided i 'm not going to give you this check because you 're just about the worst director any museum could ever have, and you know you should be ashamed of yourself if the board only you knew what kind of an idiot you were you know on and on and on and and then he said, and then I understand you 're not using the typewriters and i said oh well let 's talk about the typewriters. I was a little nervous about how I was going to." manage that but after he put me down so much I was ready to to
2: <laughs> call his bluff yeah, yeah. Right.
0: and then he was very kind of fishy after that and he kept going on about well I'll, I'll take him back if that's the way you feel and well,
2: what did you say to him about the typewriters I
0: just said look at fella, we had it evaluated and they're not they're you know they're they're rentals they're not you know where'd you get these and he was very red-faced he realized that he was kind of caught short <laughs>
4: Fisher says Vanderbilt was furious. He loaded his typewriters into his Bentley and left. So did the detectives. They'd agreed that Vanderbilt was a condescending jerk, but said they couldn't arrest him for it. Fisher decided to keep the glass mug he'd served Vanderbilt coffee in, just in case having fingerprints would come in handy.
0: I carefully washed it out a little bit of it, and then put it in a plastic bag and, <laughs> and put it away. <laughs> Sorry, great. I didn't save that cup for a moment. Very <laughs> Colombo of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Obviously, I'd seen way too many movies.
4: What came next was straight out of one.
2: At 5.30 in the morning on Christmas Eve, 1980, Fred Fisher, then the 40-year-old director of the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls, New York, awoke to a telephone call from police. Someone had tried to rob the museum.
0: Vanderbilt immediately came to mind. There was no doubt in my mind that's who it was.
2: That is who it was. Only Paul Sterling Vanderbilt was really a 20-year-old college dropout named Brian Michael McDevitt from an upper-middle-class coastal town about 12 miles north of Boston.
5: Brian McDevitt could never walk into Saratoga Springs or Glens Falls or any spot in America today and claim that he was a member of a Fortune 500 family. It would last about 13 seconds, or two beers, whichever came first.
2: But in a pre-Google era, Brian McDevitt could. And when he did, this man, Ronald Kermani, was an award-winning investigative reporter for the Times-Union newspaper in Albany, New York.
5: There's a clean-cut kid out of the uh, middle crust of Boston, coming to an area he has no idea where he is or what he's doing here. He just lands here to be near the horses and the beautiful people and, and the money, that he's going to take every opportunity to make himself a fixture and a player in town. He's got the cash and the chutzpah to do it.
2: McDevitt had financed his charade with about $100,000 he'd stolen from some safe deposit boxes in Boston in the fall of 1979, where he'd been volunteering for Senator Ted Kennedy's presidential campaign. A Boston detective had been looking for him since. As far as he knew, McDevitt had just up and vanished. When he was arrested in Glens Falls, McDevitt explained his alias to police by saying, quote, I was doing this to avoid trouble with Massachusetts authorities regarding a particular legal affair. That's conman code for felony. And now he was facing multiple felony charges in Glens Falls, too.
4: Ronald Kermani was in the newsroom on Christmas Eve when the call came in about two men arrested on kidnapping and robbery charges. And police are telling me that these two guys, one 20-some years old and
5: one 30-some years old, kidnapped a woman, a female, um, courier driver at gunpoint, and had elaborate plans to rob this museum of between 30 and $50 million of classical artwork. And I said, wow, are you kidding me? This is not April Fool's, it's Christmas Eve. He
4: said, no, Ron, the cops said, no, Ron, this is true. They're sitting here in a holding cell, as I tell you. Kermani's Christmas morning story about Brian McDevitt and his planned heist on the Hyde Collection was in the next day's paper.
0: There was this unbelievable article that just kind of blew my mind. You know, Sitting there, reading it to my wife, thinking, you know,
2: I could be dead.
0: <laughs> my God, I had no idea this was so serious.
2: This was big news for a city of 15,000 best known for an annual hot air balloon festival and a minor league hockey franchise. McDevitt's confession to police reads like a screenplay for a Hollywood caper. His tone is almost boasting. He told police, quote, I drew up equipment lists, such as vehicles that would be needed. I reviewed the problem areas, such as whether there was a panic alarm someone could push. McDevitt had bought ether, handcuffs, and tape for subduing museum employees. He'd bought toolkits at Sears. He told police, quote, They were for various problems we would run into while removing the paintings from the walls of the Hyde collection. McDevitt's accomplice told police they were prepared to cut some paintings from their frames. They'd planned to empty the place.
5: Their goal was to fence this stuff in southern Florida. It may have been worth $50 million. They were boasting that their take might be $15 million. They were going to retire in style and just jump the gun and get out of the country fast. Of course, what happened was, believe it or not, this is like the the Keystone cops. They got stuck in traffic in beautiful downtown Glens Falls. The clock kept ticking on them. And the Hyde Museum closed and the alarm was set. And they're sitting in a truck with an unconscious FedEx driver, a couple of empty cardboard boxes, duct tape, pellet pistol, and an invitation to the county jail.
2: About that FedEx driver, she was 26 years old and had been on the job for five years when McDevitt's accomplice handcuffed her, covered her eyes and mouth with tape, and knocked her out with ether in the back of her truck. Fred Fisher says, McDevitt appears to have targeted her specifically.
0: But he was contacting uh, FedEx and mailing sham packages quite often, only to find out who was on the routes and, and who the drivers were, and really spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, trying to figure out how best to do this.
2: Almost 40 years later, the FedEx driver didn't want to talk to us. She wouldn't even come to the phone. Her husband said she had no desire to relive what had been a terrifying experience. In her statement to police, the FedEx driver says this about McDevitt. Quote, He said he wouldn't harm anyone and that he isn't that kind of a person. He said couldn't I tell that by the way he was treating me. He said that if I helped him, he would make it worth my while. He said he would give me $25,000 for it. I said I didn't want the money. He said that he could put it in a Swiss account so it would be there whenever I wanted it. He said that he was going to rob from the rich to give to the poor. She reported that McDevitt had also told her that he risked ruining his family name, by which, of course, he meant Vanderbilt. When she
0: gave a statement to the police, she said that she recognized this voice, that she was blindfolded, but she had heard McDevitt's voice in the Federal Express truck. And she could recognize this this voice, and she was pretty sure it was him.
4: The FedEx driver noticed something else. She told police, quote, the dark mustache didn't go with the blonde hair. McDevitt and his accomplice had worn fake black mustaches. And early reports out of Glens Falls put the two would-be thieves in FedEx uniforms.
2: So did they or didn't they dress up as Federal Express drivers? They
0: did not, uh... McDevitt tried to buy uniforms. Wherever he did this, he was treated rather strangely, and I think he backed away thinking maybe that would, maybe somebody would get the idea of what they were doing. But they did attempt to do it.
4: McDevitt's accomplice was a divorced father who was working as an assistant manager at the Queensbury Hotel. He told police that he'd gone along with McDevitt's scheme out of fear. Quote, He mentioned love for my son, and it would be a shame if anything happened to him.
2: To read the accomplice's police statement is to realize that he had bought McDevitt's cinematic worldview wholesale. He recounted that, pre-heist, McDevitt had given them and the operation code names. They'd boned up on art theft by reading the book Thinking Like a Thief, and post-heist, their plans included taking a Concorde supersonic jet to London, or maybe Zurich, and hiding their millions with the help of a financial planner in Los Angeles.
5: The headline is, The Art Heist That Failed, But Not For Lack of Imagination.
2: Ronald Kermani could not get enough of this story. He drove to McDevitt's hometown, found a payphone, and started cold calling anyone who might have known McDevitt. He went to the library and found McDevitt's high school yearbook. The insights he gleaned filled a three-part profile published in the Times Union newspaper. The first installment came out on January 4, 1981.
5: Even in high school, Brian Michael McDevitt was the consummate hustler. At his best, classmates recall, he was articulate and aggressive. At his worst, he was brash to the point of being obnoxious. And today, he's in the Saratoga County Jail in lieu of $50,000 bail, accused of plotting an elaborate robbery designed to net him millions in our treasures.
2: Brian McDevitt served two years for kidnapping and attempted robbery. He was living in Boston in 1990 when the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum was robbed a decade after his Glens Falls misadventure. Fred Fisher says when he heard the news of the Gardner heist, he knew right away who did it, Brian McDevitt.
0: Immediately, absolutely immediately. You know, not only I, but my former staff, you know, we talked. The first thing that came out of his mouth was, for God's sake, Fred, it's got to be McDevitt, it's got to be McDevitt.
2: Why do you think that is?
0: It just, it was so clearly a similar incident, you know, timed around a holiday, disguised as somebody else, duct tape, and, you know, I, I guess they did have handcuffs, I think, at the gardener, The similarities were just very much there.
2: In the summer of 1989, Vermeer's The Concert still hung in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So did Rembrandt's only seascape, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, along with 11 other works of art that would vanish before dawn on March 18, 1990. And on July 6 that summer, Brian McDevitt met a young woman who would factor in his life for several years to come. Her name is Stephanie Rabinowitz. Did he tell you where he was from? New York, somewhere in New York. He was pretty quiet about his past. She's a photographer now, but then, Robinowitz was 22, living in the Alston neighborhood of Boston, and working in animation for film and commercials. McDevitt was just a few weeks shy of his 29th birthday when they were introduced to each other at a comedy club. Robinowitz went home and wrote in her diary.
6: He has beautiful eyes, a mix between blue and green, He's a screenwriter for The Wonder Years and Paramount and Columbia.
2: His name and eye color might have been true, but nothing else was. Brian McDevitt had dropped the Vanderbilt ruse, but was still laying claim to a literary status he didn't have. But Rabinowitz didn't know that. So when, six months into their relationship, McDevitt told her that he was headed to New York City for the Writers Guild Awards ceremony, she believed him. It was three days before the Gardner Museum would be robbed, Thursday, March fifteenth, 1990. Rabinowitz, who kept a detailed diary at the time and shared it with us, recalled that McDevitt wasn't himself when they'd spoken that day
6: by phone. He seemed agitated and nervous, um, and just not welcoming or lovey-dovey or inviting.
2: She didn't hear from McDevitt all weekend. But his tone had altogether changed by the time he called her late in the day, on Sunday, March 18th.
6: Oh, he was happy, cheery, happy to be back, happy to talk to me, you know, looking forward to getting together again. Much calmer than before he left, much nicer, and more at ease with himself. Just, he was, his whole demeanor was much nicer.
4: Former FBI Special Agent Thomas McShane was also in Boston on March 18, 1990. He'd been among the first on the scene of the robbery at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum.
7: It was, of course, taped off with the uh, yellow evidence tape that we use. The frames were all on the uh, floor, scattered in a, a real haphazardous way. It looked very disturbing, and we were just praying that they didn't ruin these paintings by the way that uh, what they left behind, it looked like a disaster.
4: McShane was an undercover art recovery expert for the FBI for a quarter of a century. By his lights, he returned some $500 million worth of stolen and forged art. There was an El Greco, a Rubens, and a Rembrandt that had been on loan from the Louvre when it was stolen.
2: And so where in, your, in the spectrum of all these cases, where is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum for you?
7: That is top
4: priority on my list. McShane says there was one suspect who was among the first to have his fingerprints sent to FBI headquarters. It's the same suspect that McShane says he would still put his money on for having pulled off the Gardner
7: heist. Brian Michael McDevitt. Uh, He was interviewed by the FBI, and immediately afterwards he took off to uh, California. This was a con man of, uh, you know, the nature of Bernie Madoff.
2: So you put Brian McDevitt in that class of con man like the best you've ever seen.
7: Exactly.
2: In the spring of 1990, Brian McDevitt left Boston and moved to a hilltop bungalow above Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles, he joined the West Coast branch of the Writers Guild, formed a production company, and touted serious credentials as a writer for television and film.
8: First he's this sort of like, you know, aristocrat who's who's a famous writer, then he's none of those things, and then not only is he none of those things, he's, he's a crook, and not only is he a crook, he's a monster.
2: Ben Pollack directs television commercials and music videos now, In mid July of 1991, when he met Brian McDevitt at the Writers Guild, he was 19, just getting started in the business, and naive.
8: He was introduced to me as this great writer who had this deal with Paramount and was doing all these wonderful things. And he said, Who are you? I like your attitude. Give me something, you know, send me something that you wrote. I'd love to read it. So I'm like, Oh, this is exactly why I came there.
2: Pollock was completely taken in by McDevitt.
8: Sophisticated and entertaining and charming and giving. Articulate, intelligent, fun person, kind of like an older brother. And uh, you had big stories that you you just believed, you know, that kind of guy.
4: But within six months of meeting Brian McDevitt, Pollock would tell police, he'd grown so leery, he hired a private detective to dig into McDevitt's story. He learned that McDevitt's business partner was himself wanted by the FBI. That man would be extradited to Chicago on 12 counts, including grand larceny. Pollock learned that nothing McDevitt had told him was true. Not the big things, like his writing credits, and not even the small things, like his claim that he owned his home in the Hollywood Hills. Pollock made more calls, starting with the producers of a major Hollywood film that McDevitt had claimed to have been working on.
8: I asked him, I said, you know, I understand that Brian McDevitt was a writer on this movie. And they're like, Brian who? And then, you know, then I started to tell them what was going on and they got fascinated by that story and they checked out other things. So they were able to check out other parts of his resume. And then they gave me the telephone numbers to call to other people, and then I did that, and then checked this one and that one, I called The New Yorker, and I called The Guardian in London, and you know where he said he had published these stories. And sure enough, nobody knew who he was. It was that simple. All you had to do was call. All you had to do was check it out. But it was so brazen, nobody did. I realized that I'm now with a total flim-flam artist, and uh, I have to get out of it. Pollock confronted McDevitt. I say, I found out all these things about you i just want to get out of this company that's all i want i was my heart was pounded my mouth was dry you know i was thinking more for him how embarrassed i would be if somebody found out that i was a flim flammer and caught me red-handed you know that's really what i was thinking anyway that's when it all started he was cool as a cucumber he told me how it was going to go and he told threatened me said if you tell anybody what you discovered you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do you in and then he was sort of you know straight up to my face I mean, he was doing the stuff that you just think, oh, no, that's, that's stuff you'd read in a, or see in a movie, you know, from some wacko. That really never happens. But no, he's that guy who did all the things you didn't think anybody would do.
2: McDevitt began quietly tormenting Pollock, waging a kind of creepy psychological warfare. He'd knock on his door in the middle of the night and then whistle from somewhere in the darkness when Pollock opened up. And he began calling Pollock over and over sometimes a hundred or more times a day, just to hang up when he answered.
8: The hang up stuff was the real, real insight to this guy. He was sitting somewhere in the dark or whatever and calling me over and over and over and over, day after day after day after week after week after week. What was going through his mind when he was doing that? It was
2: incessant. It took more than six weeks, but by April of 1992, Pollock was able to convince the police that he knew who was behind the calls. A trap on Pollock's phone proved him right.
8: All I knew is that Brian was so afraid of going to jail, even for 10 seconds. And this is what he told me that he would do anything not to go to jail. And he felt like he was going to go to jail because he got caught doing this thing with the phone. June of
2: 1992, brought a perfect storm of trouble for Brian McDevitt. He faced criminal charges for harassing Ben Pollock. He was on the verge of being ousted from the Writers Guild, exposed as a felon and a fraud. And then an article in the New York Times outed him as a prime suspect in the Gardner heist. There followed a similar article in the Los Angeles Times and then another in the Boston Globe. And on the heels of that, 60 Minutes came calling. Morley Safer, the show's late correspondent, asked McDevitt on national television if he robbed the Gardner Museum. No, McDevitt said. But, he admitted, he didn't have an alibi. There followed a summons to a grand jury back in Boston. The walls were closing in. It was around that time that McDevitt asked Stephanie Rabinowitz, who had by then also moved to L.A., to be his alibi with the FBI if they ever asked her about him and the Gardner heist.
6: You know, I shut it down because the minute he said, I really need you to lie to the FBI for me, right there, I was like, I cannot lie to the FBI. And then asking me to be his alibi, you know, I didn't put two and two together because I wasn't thinking then like, oh, he was at the Writers Guild.
2: Brian McDevitt might have been in New York City the weekend the Gardner Museum was robbed, but he wasn't at the Writers Guild Awards, as he told Rabinowitz. They were held that year in April, Robinowitz last saw McDevitt on June twenty fifth, 1992, at a party for a show she worked on. She wrote about it in her diary and recalls that meeting.
6: And he told me that this guy had paid him, I believe and remember him saying 300000 to cut out the art pieces in the museum to give it to him, and then all he would have to do is collect the money and get out of the country— And then he could live the rest of his life being taken care of. And he offered me to come with him. He actually asked me so much. He's like, please, please come with me. We could live a great life together. I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. And as great as that sounded for a 20-year-old who's kind of struggling, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I was a little tempted and I thought about it, but I thought, no, I can't do it. And I'm not going to live off of a whole lie and just of everything that had happened. So I told him I couldn't do it. He was pissed again, mad, upset, hurt. That was the last time I saw him. She never heard from him again. But
2: Rabinowitz did hear from an FBI agent about a month later. Rabinowitz says the agent had come to her apartment to question her about McDevitt and the Gardner heist. The agent couldn't question McDevitt himself, though, because he'd vanished again.
4: Nat Segaloff is a writer in North Hollywood who's written a screenplay about Brian McDevitt. He knew him both in Boston and in Los Angeles, and he liked him.
3: I'm a reporter. I started off as a reporter. I was cynical. And I've dealt with so many scumbags in the film business, both in exhibition and distribution, that an art thief, to me, is a step up.
4: Two years after McDevitt left L.A., he called Segaloff
3: Absolutely out of the blue... In October of 1994, I got a phone call from him. He said he was in Rio de Janeiro waiting for the statute of limitations to run out. At that point, I kind of got the idea that somebody was after him. He said he was in Brazil because there was no extradition treaty with the United States. And he also said that he had got wind from the grand jury that there might be an indictment handed down, so he fled the country.
4: Segaloff didn't hear from McDevitt again for another eight years when he received an email in December of 2002...
3: We just started writing back and forth. We have a voluminous correspondence. Mostly he would send me articles about art heists all over the world. And we would talk about movies and we'd talk about politics, especially the difference in politics between America and Central America, because at that point he was living in Medellin, Colombia.
4: That's where McDevitt was reportedly last seen. He'd set up a phony
3: English translation business.
2: Did you ever ask him outright if he had pulled off the Gardner heist?
3: I didn't ask Brian directly, but I tried to be coy about it because by this point I was quite curious. He sent me a how-to guide, in a sense, of how to rob a museum. He told me about other people who were involved. He told me about how the FBI was after him. These didn't come off as paranoid. These came off as sensible reports. Putting all the pieces together, I really did believe that he did it, but he wasn't going to tell me directly unless I'd broken the code somehow and got him to tell me.
4: Segalov heard from McDevitt one last time, May 10th, 2004. He said he was calling from Medellin, Colombia, and Segalov recorded the call.
1: Brian McDevitt. Certainly is. How are you? (laughs) Well, that's why I'm calling that. What? I didn't want to do this over the internet because I just wanted to talk to you for a couple of minutes. and I don't have a lot of time. Uh, How are
3: you? I'm Fine. I'm I'm holding my own here. You know how it is.
4: McDevitt got down to business. He'd been ill. It was serious. He wanted Segalov to know.
1: Look, Ned, I have to go back to the hospital tomorrow. Uh, you know, I didn't want you to, to hear about it late or, or anything else. And You know, I consider you one of the, the few friends that I have left, so everybody else has pretty much abandoned me. Including my family. And uh, I just felt that you should know. And and uh, I, I hate to kind of call you like this because, you know, but I realized that, you know, I haven't really been as prolific as I used to be on the Internet. Yeah. Yet, really since, you know, I, I got back from the hospital in, in January. And uh, so let me just tell you what's going on. And,
3: okay, please.
1: And it doesn't look like I'm going to be. Living to your ripe old age, that's for sure. (laughs) What? When I got out of the hospital, they asked me to come back, and they told me that that I was HIV positive. Uh, Needless to say, that came as quite a shock. Uh, You know, the fact is now that I've slept with dozens of women down here.
4: McDevitt told Segalov he had pneumonia and that he'd been having difficulty breathing.
1: But anyway, the point now is that I'm, I'm just running out of time. And uh, I don't want anybody to know. But I wanted you to know. Because you're one of the few people that has been so nice to me over the, the last year or so, I, I wanted to let you know what was going on because I, I really don't have anybody to tell.
4: McDevitt sounds like a man facing his own death. In June... Segaloff heard from McDevitt's sister that her brother had died 17 days after that phone call, May 27, 2004. Brian McDevitt was 43 years old.
2: Several of the people who knew Brian McDevitt, his former girlfriend, the museum director he tried to scam, the aspiring screenwriter he flim don't believe he's dead. Neither does former FBI agent Thomas McShane.
7: We could dig him up and make sure that there is a body beneath the ground, because I don't believe there is.
2: What does Nat Segaloff, perhaps McDevitt's one true friend, think?
3: I don't believe Brian faked his death for a very, very simple reason. He couldn't keep a secret with me. If he called me before going into the hospital and said he didn't expect to come out, maybe that was being overly dramatic. But he's the one who got in touch with me on every single occasion once he left Boston. I don't believe he could keep it quiet.
2: The Gardner Museum's director of security, Anthony Amore, doesn't think so either. He says he's seen McDevitt's hospital bills and Colombian death certificate. He says the guy is dead. What's more, Amore says the only museum Brian McDevitt was capable of robbing was the one in his own mind. He wanted to rob the Hyde collection after all but failed. On a drive through McDevitt's hometown, Amori dismissed the Brian McDevitt theory entirely.
6: The other thing about him being involved, though, is you have to think, this guy, his whole life was about self-aggrandizing. He wanted the attention, right? After the statute of limitations had run out, he had every opportunity to have come forward and and said he had them, and it would have been, you know, I'm the world's greatest art thief. I pulled off the biggest heist in history, and I'm not even arrested for it.
2: Maybe so. He is in a good position to know. But then, so is this guy.
3: He was the one that cuffed me. I feel, you know, 90, 90 to 95 percent certain that it was him.
2: Remember the security guard we spoke to in the first episode? The one we were only calling by his first name, Randy? He says that when he saw photos of all of the Gardner heist suspects, there was only one that jumped out at him. It was the thief who had treated him in an otherwise courteous manner. He'd readjusted his handcuffs, told him he'd make it worth his while if he cooperated, apologized for having to do this.
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like 90 to 95 percent sure that he was the guy.
4: Next time we go from the prospect of digging up the dead to digging up the gardener treasure. Go to our website at wbur.org slash last scene to watch a video of Kelly detailing the three main reasons why people steal art and to read Steve Kirkchin's reporter's notebook about a possible Gardner heist connection to Whitey Bulger, Boston's most infamous mobster. That's wbur.org slash last scene. If you have a tip, theory or thought, call our tip line at 617 617- 929-7999. That's 617-929-7999. Last Scene is a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. Our consulting producer is Stephen Kirchgen. Production and sound design by John Perotti. Eve Zukoff is our production assistant. Additional production by Catherine Brewer. Our digital team is Amy Gorell, Tiffany Campbell, Daigo Fujiwara, Jesse Costa, Robin Lubbock, and Elizabeth Gillis. We had help from the Boston Globe's Shelley Murphy, Brendan McCarthy, and John Tulumaki. Digital help from Heather Cyrus, Jason Tuey, Devin Smith, and Ryan Huddle. Editing by Jessica Alpert. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. I'm senior reporter Jack Rodolico.
2: And I'm senior producer and reporter Kelly Horan. Special thanks to artist Sophie Kal, who first used the title Last Seen at the Gardner Museum in 1991 and who granted us permission to use it. And thanks also to Nat Segoloff for the audio of Brian McDevitt's phone call and for a preview of his screenplay, Rembrandt Has Left the Building. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. all one word. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps people find the show.
8: It's a shame that he was such garbage because he was such a creative guy. You know, if he was just, if he was just, you know, if he just wanted to live honestly, he would have been very successful. But, yeah. Uh